The 360 on Energy and Carbon, hosted by 360 Energy. On today's episode, we are joined by Phil DeLuna. Phil DeLuna is Chief Carbon Scientist and Head of Engineering at Deep Sky, a carbon removals venture building large-scale infrastructure to remove CO2 from the atmosphere to reverse climate change. Prior to Deep Sky, Phil led Carbon Tech at McKinsey & Company's sustainability practice. He is a Governor General gold medal winning scientist, ranked in the top 0.1% in the world in his field, a mentor at Creative Destruction Lab, and Chair of Carbon Management Canada. Phil was the youngest ever director at the National Research Council, where he built and led a 57 million R&D program, developing disruptive technologies to decarbonize Canada. Now let's get into the episode with Phil. Welcome back, Dave and John. It's great to be back. Yes, it's another wonderful week with another wonderful guest. On that note, thanks for joining us, Phil DeLuna, Chief Carbon Scientist and Head of Engineering at Deep Sky. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure to be back on the show. So before we kick off this episode, Phil, how's it going? What's happened since we last spoke? <laughs> yeah, last time we spoke, I was still at the National Research Council of Canada, where I was leading a $57 million cleantech program focused on CO2 conversion, clean hydrogen production, and artificial intelligence for materials discovery. And I was loving my job. It was fantastic. But, you know, frankly, I felt that I was moving a little bit faster than the organization could allow. And I think you hear that from a lot of folks who, are, who work in government agencies. So I was looking for a move and I ended up trying to, to see what it was like in the private sector. And I wanted something that was really fast paced. So I ended up joining McKinsey, where I led a carbon tech for the sustainability practice in Toronto. And I advised innovators, incumbents, investors, all on climate tech, how to adopt it, how to invest in it, how to deploy it, you know, airlines on their sustainable aviation fuel strategy, pension funds on how to track and set emission targets, sovereign wealth funds on standing up new pools of capital to invest in early stage climate tech. It was, it was a lot of fun. I was having a great time. And the people that I was working with were just so talented and brilliant. But eventually I realized that I wanted to be a, that I'm a doer, not necessarily an advisor. And there's nothing wrong with being an advisor and the work that McKinsey does is fantastic. And all management consultants out there, the work you do is really important. But I'm a bit entrepreneurial and I was getting the itch to go do something entrepreneurial again. So I joined Deep Sky and I'm sure we can tell, talk all about that, but I'm really, really thrilled to be at an organization that is mission driven, matches the pace and is at the start of an industry in Canada and the world. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. Well, thanks for joining us again, Phil. Phil, that's a great segue. And for our listeners, Phil is extremely active in social media. I mean, this guy is a mover and shaker in every capacity. And, and I, Phil, I, I welcome you into the entrepreneurial world because we need more people like you to do the work that needs to happen in this energy transition. So let me start off with the first question. Can you tell us about Deep Sky? Because, you know, probably many of our listeners are not aware of who they are and what they do. Sure. So the story of Deep Sky be begins with our founders, Fred Lalonde and Yost Overkirk. Fred and Yost founded a company called Hopper, which is a $10 billion travel app company, the second largest privately held tech company in Canada. They're based in Montreal. A few years ago, they started offsetting the emissions of their customers by planting trees. 
They planted, I think, 30 million trees over three years. They thought they were doing a great job. They started to do some PR about it. And climate activists and journalists would say that they're greenwashing. How can you, a company that is encouraging travel, be making a difference on, on climate? And so that encouraged, encouraged them to really look into climate much more deeply. And they realized two things. Uh, the first is that um, the IPCC models are likely all wrong in the sense that we're experiencing tipping points. We're experiencing um, a much more aggressive warming than any of the projections predicted. And if we continue down this path, it's only going to become more exponential. Uh, and the second thing is that planting trees is not enough. If you look at the math and you see what the concentration of CO2 is in the atmosphere today, if you go back in time and you look in the historic record and say, when was the last time the Earth had a concentration of CO2 at 424 parts per million? You'll be back 3 million years in the mid-Pliocene era, where the average temperature of the Earth was plus 5 degrees greater. So clearly there doesn't seem to be a match between temperature and emissions that are completely linear but also there seems to be a delay, a lag. And the science has shown that, in fact, there's anywhere between a 10 to 50-year delay between when a CO2 molecule enters the atmosphere and the warming that it creates. So Deep Sky was born because of that, because we actually need to start building the infrastructure to remove carbon dioxide from the air and our oceans today in order to avert the worst of climate change. And we actually believe that we need to remove every ton of historical emission that humanity has put into the atmosphere in order to get us back into a stable climate. And that we actually have baked in warming that we have yet to see. We call this pipeline emissions. There's lots of studies that show that um, even if we were to completely stop emissions today, if we were to all ride horses and hunt for our food, the world would continue to warm for another one or two degrees for the next 30, 50 years. So if that's the case, we have to get started. Um, what is Deep Sky? Deep Sky is a technology agnostic project developer and owner operator of carbon removal infrastructure. The way I like to describe it as we are an oil and gas company in reverse. Oil and gas company takes fossil fuels from underground it extracts energy and that releases CO2 into the atmosphere. We take CO2 out of the atmosphere, use renewable energy to do it, and then stick the CO2 back underground. And the way that we do this, and the only the, the way, the reason why we're based in Quebec is because you need to have a clean re renewable electricity in order to power the process, or it doesn't make any sense. And so in Quebec, the grid is about 99% hydroelectricity, very clean, abundant. Now that's going to go away very soon, especially as the demands for electricity continue to increase for green electricity. When the world decarbonizes and everyone is driving around in their Teslas or has heat pumps, that competition for those green electrons will be fierce. But thankfully, Quebec also has a massive potential for onshore wind. There are some parts in northern Quebec that have the equivalent wind density to offshore on the Atlantic. At the same time, Canada in general has an immense potential for renewables, whether that's solar and wind in the short term to nuclear in the long term, small modular reactors, etc. And it has the geologic makeup to be able to store and sequester CO2. In Quebec, there, there's mafic and ultramafic rocks. These are rocks that when you pass CO2 on top of it, it actually solidifies and turns into rock themselves. This is what Carbfix in Iceland is doing. And at the same time, in the West, we have enough storage capacity 
underneath Alberta and Saskatchewan to actually reverse climate change. We can store every single ton that humanity has emitted into the atmosphere out west. And so we think there's a tremendous opportunity for Canada to be a world leader and to be able to have the lowest levelized cost of carbon removal in the world. And and we're a company that is looking to go do that. Wow. Quite impressive. And and for our listeners, the amount of detail that you provided was and really helpful to convey our challenges ahead, but also the opportunities that Canada has and that Deep Sky has ahead of them. It sounds like a wonderful opportunity. Yeah, can, can see why you moved on. I mean, you know, you want to be involved in something entrepreneurial, exciting, that's going to change the world. And that sounds like what you're doing there. Okay, my, my question, and I think this is partly to help me, but to help our listeners as well. Could you give us a sort of a brief 101 on the technologies that are available for carbon uh, removal or capture? Yeah, well, well, first, let me explain um, the broad umbrella of carbon capture, because there's a difference between carbon capture from point source and carbon removal from the atmosphere. Right. Um, yeah. The way I like to describe it is uh, think of think of the atmosphere as a bathtub that's overflowing with water. Water in this analogy is CO2. If you have a bathtub that's overflowing, you do two things. The first thing you do is you turn off the tap. And the next thing you do is you pull the plug. Yep. So carbon capture at point source is turning off the tap. It's reducing emissions where they start. And it's catching the CO2 before it enters the atmosphere. It's making sure that water doesn't get into the bathtub. Carbon removal is pulling the plug. It's taking carbon dioxide that's already been emitted and removing it from the air, filtering it out of the air, and sticking it underground. And now the concentration of CO2 in the air is about 424 parts per million. So that means for a million molecules of CO2, there's only 424 uh, molecules, sorry, a million molecules of air, there's only 424 molecules of CO2. So it's a very small concentration compared to let's say point source capture where it could be anywhere from 15 to 20% of the flu stack is point source. So when we think about carbon capture, the first thing that we should do is turn off the tap. We need to be deploying carbon capture point source on all of our heavy emissions industries today, because there's already capital expenditures that have been made. There's already infrastructure that is emitting CO2 into the atmosphere. It's unrealistic to think we're going to turn off and completely wean ourselves off of fossil fuels tomorrow. The very least we could do is mitigate the emissions from doing that. But there are still many areas that are hard to abate or emissions that don't come from a point source. Transportation, agriculture, cement and steel production, buildings. All of these are hard to abate emissions because they're difficult to electrify or they're diffuse. They don't happen just at one place. When an airline flies around the world, it burns fuel and emits CO2 into the atmosphere. It's thermodynamically and from the laws of physics, Uh, almost impossible to fit a filter that you can capture the emissions from a jet in the air. And so we have to think about ways to address these these emissions that we can't just capture at point. Now, when we talk about the the technologies in carbon removals, I'll, I'll take that and put that aside from the technologies that are in point source capture. Actually, a lot of the technologies are very similar. Ultimately, what you're doing is you're applying a filter or some sort of 
solvent or sorbent is what we call it, that captures carbon dioxide and lets other gases through, nitrogen, oxygen. And then once it's captured into that filter, you have to suck the CO2 out of that filter or you apply some heat in order to re um, release that CO2, basically squeezing the sponge so that you can use that filter again. And this process of, of generation and regeneration of the solvent, of the sorbent, of the filter, is essentially the main, the main process by which we capture CO2 from the air or from the ocean. And so you might be asking, well, why do we have to capture CO2 from the ocean as well? In fact, the ocean is actually the world's largest carbon sink. There is more inorganic carbon stored in the ocean than there is stored in the earth or in the air. Far more, multiples more than both of the air and the earth combined. And this makes sense. We've been emitting carbon dioxide into the air and the air, the CO2 in the air, it actually goes into the ocean and, and creates acidity. That's why we have ocean acidification. We're not acidifying our oceans by literally putting acid into the water. We're not dumping acid into the water. So why is it that our ocean is becoming so much more acidic? It's because CO2 that we emit into the air goes back into the ocean naturally through a, a dynamic air-gas-sea exchange, and that creates car carbonic acid. We're, we're literally creating soda water in our atmosphere. And so in order to reverse climate change, if we just pull CO2 out of the air, then the carbonic acid or the soda water is going to outgas back into the air. So we have to do both. We have to remove CO2 both from the air and from the ocean at the same time to draw things down. So the technologies that we're looking at at, at Deep Sky, and I should, I should say to you that what makes us different from other companies is that we're a technology agnostic project developer. There are some companies that are building technologies themselves. They're, they're making the reactors, they're making the materials, the sorbents, the fans, and they're trying to scale that up. But they, every time these companies, many of them are young, they're not necessarily that mature. They're coming out of academic labs, they're scientists and engineers, and they hit walls. Those walls are storage and electricity. They don't know where to store the CO2. They don't know where to uh, procure the electricity. They don't know how to permit things. They don't know how to lease land. They don't know all of the skills that you need for project development. So that's why Deep Sky was, was, was founded really, was to provide a, and fill a gap in the market of a project developer to help technology developers scale, which makes sense. If you look at solar or wind, you know Panasonic builds solar cells, but they're not bullfrog energy building the solar projects in Ontario. You have technology developers and you have project developers. We are project developers in the CDR space. And so the technologies that we're looking at we're working in partnership with technology developers, startup companies. We've announced two so far that we're bringing to Canada, Captura, which is a direct ocean capture technology, and Mission Zero, which is an electrochemical CO2 direct air capture technology. I can go into the details of the technologies if you'd like in a minute, but I can tell you more. What are we looking for when we assess which technologies we want to bring to Canada? I should, I should mention that the explosion of companies over the last couple of years has just been insane. So uh, when we identify a company, and I've literally been traveling around the world, meeting these companies, going into their labs, seeing their manufacturing capabilities, looking at their pilots and assessing whether they can scale, we look for a few things. The first is, is there a pathway to low energy intensity? I said earlier, there's going to be a fierce competition for green electrons. Well, that means that we need to have technologies that use the least amount of energy as possible to capture a ton of CO2. 
and we're targeting a 1,000 kilowatt hour per ton of CO2 energy intensity as a metric that we hope our, our, our technologies and partners can reach. The second thing is we want our, these technologies to be completely electrified. They, they can run completely on electricity. Some of them are going to need heat, but if that heat can be produced by heat pumps or electricity, that's fine. What we don't want are technologies that need really high temperature heat, really high grade process heat that need to be co-located next to an industrial facility because that limits our flexibility to deploy. We want to deploy our capture plants right on top of storage. And the interface between storage, industrial emissions, heat, energy, et cetera, it, it's already complex. So we're looking for technologies that are modular, that you can deploy, that are just run on electricity. The third thing we're looking for are those that are scalable. Can you actually mass manufacture and mass produce these things? Are they modular? Because if we look at the way to scale something and lower down costs, it's by making a lot of them. You know, uh, if you were to take a, a Tesla car and then build it in your garage, like all of the companies are doing now, just building in their garages, it would cost you one, $2 million. But by creating a manufacturing supply chain and mass producing these things, we can get the costs down much more rapidly. So those are the three things we look at when we assess technologies. Can it have a pathway to low energy intensity? Can it be run by electricity alone and no process heat? Can it uh, be scalable and mass manufacturable? That 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 is that is re really useful because I I think particularly the talk I, I I've heard you talk about the bathtub before, but I think this point about capturing and removal I think is some subtlety and it's something we've been discussing as a group. We have to be in in the space we're all working in now. We have to be really careful about the language we use because of what it's defined and what people mean with it. And I think getting one or two definitions down is really, really important. So, so thanks for that. Over to you, Dave. So, Phil, you had conveyed in, in the earlier piece that effectively much of this is being or occurring in Quebec. Are you looking at other locations besides the Quebec market? If you want to scale this, you actually, are you looking around the world? And, and if so, like, what are the ideal locations? I think you mentioned it, but if you could, again, identify what are the ideal locations to actually implement this this carbon capture? Yeah, uh, yeah. So we are focused on Canada. We are focused in Canada. We want to scale in Canada. We truly believe, we're all of us at the company are proud Canadians. Some are very proud Quebecois. And uh, while we're starting in Quebec, we're going to expand across Canada. Um, Alberta is the next obvious place to look, mm -hmm. right? They have the storage right there. The only lack is renewable energy, but we know that there's renewable capacity online or coming online, despite the fact that there's a moratorium right now on permitting, there's still many projects that are being built before that permitting process or in the pipeline that, 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 that can be options. Ontario in the future could be another fantastic place to be, especially when we consider the investments that are going into small modular nuclear reactors and to nuclear in general. So I, I think... BC, another wonderful place that, uh, that you could be where you have both access to the ocean, so you can do direct ocean capture, as well as potential geologic formations where you could do a mineralization, in situ mineralization underground. So there, we believe that we could solve the world's climate issues in Canada, that we can capture all the CO2 that the world has emitted and store it in Canada. We have the geologic formations, we have the potential 
to build out the renewable capacity. We just have to go do it. And our, our business model is actually very simple. We sell carbon credits. We capture carbon dioxide, we generate a carbon credit, and then we sell it either in the beginning to the voluntary carbon market. But in the long term, we believe that governments around the world are going to pay for this. They're, they must. Things are going to get really bad, really scary, really quickly. Uh, and the social pressure to do something um, will be so great. And I, I, I don't like talking about the, the repercussions of climate because it gets dark really quickly. Um, but, you know, this the opportunity for Canada to be a world leader and to actually export the carbon credits that we produce here, it is just as big. It's like being at the forefront of the oil and gas industry in the turn of the last century. Uh, that is the opportunity set that we have in front of us. Pretty impressive. Yeah, that is. John, you'll be you you'll be moving over to Canada very soon, soon hey, John? Well, it, it, yeah, it would be nice. It's a, perhaps a little late in life to be making that move. <laughs> but, it, but it is interesting because it was striking me, you know, we were talking about where you locate these things. If we're taking CO2 from the air, from that point of view, it doesn't matter where you are. It's being on no. top of something that you can put the carbon into, isn't it? Okay, that brings me on. I've got a two-part question. And when it was written down, I thought, that's fine. And now I'm going to ask it. I'm thinking, hmm. Because the first part of the question is, how efficient is carbon removal? And I thought to myself, how do we define the efficiency of it? So that's that's the first chunk of the question. And the other one comes about what happens to the carbon once it's removed. And I want to just put a tag a bit on there. I know a number of people that I have talked to, and their sort of view is, it's all very well capturing this carbon and putting it in the ground but what if it leaks? So there's my, my two-part question is, how do you measure the efficiency of the process and what happens to the carbon once it removed, once it's removed and does it stay there? Yeah, it's a, it's a great, great question. So there's the first one on efficiency, there's two ways to measure it. The first is the net CO2 that's being removed over the entire life cycle of that process. And what I right. mean by that is, if, if you are removing carbon dioxide and you're burning natural gas to do it, you're going to take a hit on the net amount of CO2 that you remove yeah. because you're emitting CO2 into the air. Sure, you might be doing some carbon point source capture on that, but then there's life cycle emissions embedded in producing those assets, et cetera. So there's a net, if you have to transport it somewhere, there, there's a net amount. And I, I, the, the efficiency of that, that's why it's so important that we build it directly on top of storage and that it's renewably powered. If, yeah. if you do those two things, if you take out transportation and you renewably power this process, then the net amount or net efficiency of carbon removal can be as high as 99%. Now, the second question is energy efficiency. So I gave you a number before, which was 1,000 kilowatt hours per ton of CO2. Right now, the most advanced technologies, the most scale technologies are at around three to 4,000 uh, kilowatt hours per ton of CO2, maybe a little bit higher. So we're talking about trying to bring down the energy intensity and the efficiency of the process by four times, 4x. So that's a big thing to do, but there's a brand new generation of technologies that are being, that every day, we're, we're speaking to two or three different companies every week. We've spoken and evaluated over 50 technology companies and I just started four months ago. So there's so much um, movement in the space uh, I'm sure that we'll be able to get down to uh, that energy intensity as as things improve. Now, your second question, storage. 
Once you take the CO2, what do you do with it? Where do you put it? There are multiple ways to store CO2 permanently and measurably that we're looking at. And the three main ones are uh, injection into deep saline aquifers, uh, in situ mineralization, and ex situ mineralization. So let me break each of those three down and explain the differences. Injection into deep saline aquifer. This is what the oil and gas industry has been doing for 70 years, or since the 70s, so not 70 years. The, the, this is essentially what, they, what you do. You drill a well, and you take carbon dioxide, and you pump it underground deep, you know, almost 800 meters, almost to a kilometer underground. And then you put that into reservoirs that, over time, geologic reservoirs were formed underground where saline water leaked into and then got closed off. And these reservoirs are extremely, extremely safe and extremely mature. And it makes sense, right? So we've been doing this for over, you know, since the 70s, and there has yet to be a single leak. So that's the first point. The reason being is when you inject CO2 underground, you do so at a liquid supercritical form. And when you do, when you do that underground, the pressure underground is such that it's, it's very difficult or almost here impossible for that CO2 to come back up. Uh, and it's, it's doing so in a, uh, a liquid form. So there's pressure, there's heat, there's all that kind of stuff that's kind of holding the CO2 underground in a supercritical form. So that's, that's deep saline aquifer storage. The second thing I said, in situ mineralization. So what, first let me describe each of those comments. In situ means in the situation underground. Mineralization means um, taking carbon dioxide and mineralizing it, turning it into rock. So in situ mineralization is basically injecting CO2 underground so that it turns into rock. Now you might be wondering, that sounds insane. How does that work? Well, actually that happens naturally all the time. That's what carbonate is. So when you think about calcium carbonate or limestone, that is basically just CO2 that has reacted with calcium metal in the earth's crust to form a mineral, a new mineral. This happens naturally, but it takes a span of hundreds or, or thousands of years to occur. And so you don't see it with your eyes, but the world, the, the, the earth is constantly mineralizing CO2 all the time. That's part of the natural carbon cycle. And so there are uh, companies and technologies that are seeing how can we speed up this natural process? What they do is they basically take soda water and then they inject it underground into, and this is much less deep, so around three or 400 meters. And they, th this soda water essentially dissolves some of the rock underground and then immediately re-solidifies with the CO2. And what you end up getting is, there's some really cool pictures. You can look up a company called Carbfix in Iceland, another one called 4401, and another one called Sela. They're all commercializing this technology in different ways, where you basically uh, have these columns of mineralized carbonate rock that form underground because you're essentially doing this in-situ mineralization. Now, the final way that you can do this is ex-situ mineralization, meaning mineralizing things above ground, turning CO2 into rock above ground. And this makes sense because th there's lots of, it, this is how CO2 gets mineralized in the first place. There's movements in the Earth's crust, and then reactive minerals like magnesium and calcium emerge to the surface. They touch air. The CO2 in the air turns it into carbonate rock. We can speed up this process above ground as well. 
So we're working with a company called Xterra Carbon uh, Solutions. And what they're doing is they're taking mine tailings and they're extracting the magnesium from the mine tailings, which also destroys any harmful fibers in the mine tailings like asbestos. And then we take that magnesium and then we react it with CO2 in the air to turn it into rock. So broadly, again, what do we do with the CO2 once we capture it? We, we inject it deep underground into very stable reservoirs where it can't escape. We inject it underground where it dissolves and then reforms into rock. And then we mix it with rock above ground uh, and speed up the natural process of mineralization above ground. Thank you. I'm, I'm kind of wondering, Phil, in the last part that you're conveying, would that be used for the aggregate industry? Like, I don't know the speed of, of that occurring. Is yeah, that yeah. effectively? Yeah. Absolutely. So in fact, there are companies out there that, that this is their entire business model, is taking carbon dioxide, mineralizing it, and you can mineralize it into the actual process of making concrete or mineralizing it into making aggregates. And there are companies like Carbon Upcycling Technologies, which is a Canadian company, or Carbon Cure, which won the first Carbon Room X Prize back in 2015-19. These companies are, are doing exactly that. Tune in next week for part two with Phil DeLuna. That's all for today's episode of the 360 on Energy and Carbon podcast. Thanks for listening. Make sure to check us out on our website at 360energy.net and follow us on LinkedIn at 360 Energy Inc. Tune in to our podcast on Apple Music, Spotify, Anchor, or other listening platforms by searching the 360 on Energy and Carbon. You can watch the video recording and subscribe on YouTube at 360 Energy Inc. Email us your feedback at podcast at 360energy.net or comment on our LinkedIn posts. See you next week.